Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for being here. My name is Brandon DeRoche. I am the founder of Propeller. Propeller is a platform that inspires activism and helps build movements for change. One of the movements that we're focused on building is the psychedelic movement. And we do that through an initiative we have called Portal. Portal's in partnership with several nonprofits in the space, different companies and media outlets. And um, uh, our, we have, our, our goal is to help destigmatize the responsible use of psychedelics. A big way that we do that is by partnering with different musicians and festivals and creating campaigns that inspire fans to get involved and to take action. So music and psychedelics have gone hand in hand for many years. Um, there's been this long period of vilification, um, but now we're on this precipice of mainstream acceptance and legalization of psychedelics as a tool for our mental health. So what we're here to do today is talk about the role that psychedelics have in music. Um, so whether that's coming from the perspective of an artist or from the cause side of things or someone in the industry, um, I'm here joined by these three lovely people. Um, but before we jump in, I just wanted to see by a show of hands, how many people here have tried psychedelics in their life? Wow. wow. <laughs> All right. Well, so how about we start by just going down the line if everyone wants to just introduce themselves and maybe talk a bit about your first experience with psychedelics. Hi, everyone. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. My name is Brandon Boyd. Um, I sing and songwrite in a band called Incubus. Should I talk about my first experience now, or should we? Tell us. OK. Um, my first experience with psychedelics, I think I was 16. And uh, I ate an eighth of magic mushrooms. And everything is different now. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, hello, one, super grateful to be with y'all talking about drugs and music in Texas, my home state. Yeah. Lovely. Um, also kind of funny that the panel about drugs and music is at 10 a.m. It's kind of <laughs> Deep irony, huh? Right? I think we know our audience better. Uh, my name is Devin Phillips. I'm the creative strategist at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or as we call it, MAPS, thank God. And my first experience with psychedelics, I was 16, and my friend's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to lay at my house and watch Across the Universe. And I'm like, I've already seen it. They're like, no, 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 you haven't seen it like this. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He's like, take this little tab, and we're going to watch Across the Universe like twice. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He's like, also, we're buying strawberries. I'm like, why are you so excited about this? Uh, took LSD, watched Across the Universe, and I was like, oh, okay, now I know why you're so excited about this. And after that, yeah, uh, I'm in the space now. So I haven't turned back since. Hi, all. Thanks for being here. I'm Laurel Stearns. Uh, I work at a company called Primary Wave, which is a publishing house and management company. Lots of iconic artists from the Princes and James Browns and Bob Marleys and lots of people who imbibed. <laughs> and um, I had a first experience moment with LSD when I was 14, and I too watched a movie called The Wall, <laughs> and it was uh, life-changing, and I, I watched it with a couple American Indians who I, was, I grew up with in the desert in Palm Springs. You don't really do a whole lot out in the desert except for 
get tan and maybe some psychedelics. <laughs> so I, I didn't realize then the significance of my, my American Indian friends at that moment in time, but it all has become a lot clearer now with that connection uh, with plant medicine. And, you know, things are a lot different now in a better way. So yeah, that was it. Right on. Great, thank you all for sharing. Um, I wanna start with Devin. Devin, I think, you know, I, we talked a bit about the acceptance of psychedelics becoming more mainstream, how it's becoming more mainstream legalization, but I think just to set the stage a bit, can you talk a little bit about where we are today um, with what's happening in different states and across the country? Yeah, I can touch on it. I mean, to summarize a lot. Um, so from like a policy standpoint, right, we have, be it uh, Prop 122 in Colorado, Measure 109 in Oregon, we have something in Michigan, Arizona, Florida, research bills in Texas, uh, Oklahoma, if I had already said that. Uh, so there's a lot going on in a policy standpoint. And even with that though, like for example, 109 and 122 is a and regulation bill. There's still a lot of different, like there's mad differences in between those two. So there's still a lot of variation, still a lot of trial and error. So there's still a lot to come that we have to see what's maybe the possible best route. From a business standpoint, there are I believe over 40 public psychedelic companies, which is crazy to say, mostly biotech. There are a handful of phase three studies going on, uh, R3B studies got done, whoop whoop. And there's over two dozen phase two studies going on, over two dozen phase one, more in discovery. So there's a ton in the pharmaceutical pipeline. And then you have, I guess you can say like a spiritual aspect. You have a bunch of psychedelic churches popping up, uh, be it for spiritual purposes or loophole purposes, depends on who you're talking to. And then you have like what I think we'll talk about today is kind of like your mainstream concept, right? We have Jaden Smith talking about psychedelics. We have Prince Harry talking about psychedelics. Aaron Rodgers doing ayahuasca, doing ayahuasca celebrations when they score touchdowns. Um, you have, you know, every month I wake up and see an article like how moms are taking mushrooms to take care of their toddlers. You know, it's, um, it's a weird, amazing, fragile time to be alive right now for psychedelics. You know, it's... Super exciting, but it's also very scary because as Americans, don't know if y'all know this, we're not very good at mainstreaming things. We tend to overdo it and then realize that we've overdone it and overdo it a little bit more, and then we're like, okay, maybe we should take some steps back. Um, and usually we can kind of do that because some of the things that we put into the market or in the population, there are a large room for error, but with psychedelics, it, it's such a key part of like social determinants of health. It's a mental aspect. It's a drug policy aspect. It's a individual psychological aspect that our room for error is pretty small. So it's really important that we have these cultural strategies and events to really help responsibly mainstream this. Thank you. Brandon. 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 <laughs> Doctor. Doctor. The year is 1995. Mm. Incubus is just getting started. Um, you put out an album, mm -hmm. Fungus Among Us, yes. at the time, yes. including a track, Psycho psilocybin <laughs> so i'm just curious to hear <laughs> we did do that <laughs> i'm curious to hear i was you know, i think i was 18. so when you were 18 yeah. how how did um psychedelics possibly play into where you were at that time as the band was just getting started mm. yeah it was a markedly different time than what you're describing in the kind of in the present um, and it's been so fascinating to watch psychedelics go from uh, being this sort of underground, illicit, kind of like sneaky, sneaky thing that 
the sort of subcultures of us were, you know, were doing when we were kids, and we would quite literally like go to jail for, which in a way kind of made it more fun too. It was like there was an element of danger to it. Um, and so, but which, I'm gonna digress for a moment, but it's interesting because the way that we were forced to do it in the sort of um, under wraps thing kind of had the, the set and setting built into it. We knew as kids to be in a safe place, do it away from like authority you know, figures of sorts, and we knew to do it um, with uh, relative intentionality. So uh, I just find it's just kind of interesting and ironic that that's become sort of like the mantra mm -hmm. with um, responsible psychedelic use is sort of set and setting. Um, but yeah, we, we would, uh, it wasn't necessarily hard to, to come by um, psilocybin. It was, you know, growing up in Southern California, it was kind of everywhere. And so, um, a couple of us in the band would get together and we'd like go to uh, the beach or the desert or a state park or something and then we would have an amazing afternoon sort of uh, exploring, you know. And these, it was early enough in my life that I didn't necessarily equate it to anything other than intentional play. You know, we were kids playing with our environment, um, but that happened to lend itself really well to making music and coming up with ideas. I, I don't think that the record that you're talking about is necessarily good, but it's very well intended. <laughs> we, we, we were trying our hardest, you know, and we were having a fantastic time doing it, and we had no, um, we, it, at least in my mind, we, we weren't shooting to be, uh, to have a career in music. It was more just like, this is something we do. We loved going to shows, and we loved, uh, that part of of the subculture that was happening then in the in the early in the mid '90s, and so I think as kids we were just emulating it, you know. But um, the older I get, the more sort of blessed I feel to ha have encountered these compounds at a young age. If, I don't know if you guys have heard the the saying that uh, psychedelics are wasted on the youth. It's something I've heard recently, and I remember hearing it. And I understand the sentiment behind it, but I don't agree. I feel like um, we were using them relatively responsibly. You know, we weren't like going out and doing bad shit. You know what I mean? We were, we were like sitting in puddles of mud literally and pondering God and writing music in our heads and, you know, communing with frogs and shit like that. <laughs> sounds crazy, but that's actually a really cool way to grow up <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, like, do you feel that that impacted your creativity at a young age and something that carried through? I think that it um, most certainly did. I think that um, human beings are um, inherently creative in one way or another. There's sort of, just like there are different forms of intelligence, um, there's such a thing as like a creative intelligence. And there's also different forms of creativity. I have friends that are uh, geniuses in, in with logic or with math. And I have, you know, I know people that are skilled painters and, or songwriters. Um, and so I think I had a sort of predilection towards visual and audio art. And I grew up in a household where it was encouraged. Uh, but psychedelics have a way of um, kind of removing that, that left hemispheric editing function 
the more I learn sort of about how they seem to work. And as a kid, um, I was already not asking too many questions about why I was having sort of creative impulses. And then we were introducing these compounds that were also erasing any other traces of editing impulses. So it was just like, bah, ah, <laughs> there it is. And then we'd look at it and be like, ah, oh, that's terrible, but it doesn't matter. It was so fun, you know? And then we ended up getting a little bit better over the years. Laurel, when you yes. first started taking psychedelics in the desert Check. when you were a kid, did you, did you continue that throughout your life or did you have a period where you paused? And I'm just curious like, how that evolved over time. Well, I, um, living in the desert, and again, mentioning not having a whole lot to do, I, I went pretty hard as a kid. And I realized, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing this because it was, it was a lot. But to your point, Brandon, I was like, I'm so open, I'm so free. Like anything was possible, anything that you could imagine. If you can see it, you can be it. And you see a lot when you're in that state. <laughs> so it really informed me. And I did stop around the age of 19, 20. But working on my side of the business, there's so many pressures, so much uh, weight and stress in our world in general. But in the business that I'm in, I was like, wow, I, I feel like I needed to break through again. So I, I met the Hunikuan, and they are an indigenous tribe uh, who have been working with plant medicine for forever. And I sat in ceremony, and I realized I needed to find peace within the world that we're in. It's so stressful. There's so much going on all the time. We're, I feel like we're morphing as a race into a, we're transforming, like we're becoming cyborgs basically. <laughs> and the amount that we have to keep up, we have to keep up more and more and more. So much information and data coming at us every day. I, I realized like, I think I need to find a, a tool, something to help me. And it came to me naturally. Like I wasn't really searching it out, but the, the, the spiritual aspect and finding this, this uh, plant medicine to help just see things in a different lens, that's, that's, what, that's why I brought it back in. I was like, oh, I don't, I'm not microdosing every day. It's, it's very sparse. Like, it might be once every few years. It's not something that I'm like, got to go get my, you know, my plant friends. I'm like, I, I ration the passion. <laughs> so, I'm in a yeah. similar place with it. That's interesting that you say that, because I definitely went a lot harder yeah. Uh, when I was younger, but I think that um, and I never actually had a bad experience with psychedelics. They were Same. always sort of like revelatory and beautiful, and if they were frightening, they were there was context to it. It was frightening for reasons that needed to be revealed. You learn. You learn a you lot learn from, from it. it. Um, I believe that. I believe that's what mistakes are. Yeah. You learn from them. They're not but, actually mistakes. They're lessons. Absolutely. But the, one of the reasons why I've uh, slowed down, similar to you, I will occasionally microdose. And I haven't had a, a heroic dose in a little over 10 years. Um, but it's only because uh, it's, it's a result of a deep reverence and respect for these compounds. Yeah. There's something there. As I've gotten older, the more I realize that these things are incredibly valuable, but um, dosage is very important. And at a, beyond a certain dosage, like these things are not to be fucked with. They're, 
they will beat you down. <laughs> yeah. As I'm they sure everyone, part... almost everyone in the room raised their hands. I'm sure everyone's had an experience where it's like, yeah. I may have taken too much. And Mother you learn, nature. You learn a lot. You learn a lot from those experiences. You learn the edges of your sort of psychological and spiritual robustness, if, if that can be said, um, which is incredibly uh, educational. Um, but then, you know, the, the microdosing phenomenon is... Uh, something that's kind of fascinating because it, it's, it's as I'm sure most of you, have, most people have microdosed, I'm assuming, here too. Um, I'm sure that's different depending on who you ask, like what is micro, but in my experience it's been like sub-perceptual. Yeah. Like you kind of forget that you, that you took it, but you find yourself a lot more sort of focused and interested and in, it might even be like a menial task that you're doing. Um, for me it's like it's taking care of plants and gardening with microdosing. Yeah. It's lovely. It's just lovely. Yeah. The microdosing so interested me. I, obviously, I, I've microdosed before and I have for like the last five years. But also, the thing I'm concerned about microdosing, I feel like it's, um, it's a gateway for people, some people, to be like, like people who say, oh, I don't drink. I only take a glass of wine a night. You know, it's like they have ability to do psychedelics, yet they can still live in the drug setting that America has made in the current like, drug war. Not saying everyone does that, and again, I microdose and see benefits from it, but I think it does open up that door for like an exceptionalism uh, type perception towards it, maybe. But I, I want to go back to what you are saying about like taking plant medicine um, a lot less than earlier when younger. I, I went hard. I mean, I grew up in West Texas. There's no psychedelic spiritual scene in West Texas. It's it's God. Uh, so my psychedelic trips were the rave scene. I'll go to conferences, I'd go to or conferences, festivals, I'd go to warehouses that are broken down until we got arrested type situations and take whatever tab and whatever liquid or whatever that they gave me when I was 17 years old. Um, but then the more I did, well, one, I saw God and I was like 20. I was like, well, this is crazy. I probably should stop doing that. And then two, <laughs> I was like, whoa. And then when you, when you see that, like, that's why the setting is so important because West Texas, again, I'm not going to go to a pastor and be like, hey, I took acid and saw God. Like, what do y'all think about this? I'd probably get kicked out of my city. So I just kind of like kept it to myself because I didn't know who could relate to this. And I read Ram Dass, Be Here Now. I was like, that's exactly how I'm feeling. But I started taking less and less psychedelics just because I've started to see through the psychedelics how important integration was and how, how health is a full vertical and how like, oh, not, this, this tab's not healing me, this psilocybin's not healing me. Calling my mom once or twice or three times a week is actually really helping healing me, you know? Like, watching my diet, how do I sleep, how do I communicate with my friends, am I open? And it's like, from the, from the psychedelic, be it if you want to call it medicine or a drug or really whatever you want to say it is, it, it taught me that the community heals, and it's like the less you need, it's not the substance itself, it's the actual integration, the community around it. And I say all the time, like I talk, I work for a psychedelic research company, but I talk about psychedelics maybe like 30 or 40% of the time. Yeah. It, it's really like the, the, it's the maybe spark of the conversation, yeah. but it's almost like a beautiful Trojan horse to get to the actual internal core of like who we are as humans and who we are as people and how we love and how we talk to each other. And I think it's just this amazing tool and the more you use it, I don't want to say the more you use it, I don't want to like equate it to like frequency, but I think it can open up that, uh, that knowledge of, you know, you are the people around you and how you love around you and you don't need a substance to continuously tell you that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been, this, this process has been with humanity for thousands of years when it came to working with nature in this way. It's primordial. It is a part of our world. It was given, it's a gift. So doing things responsibly, I mean, I, I, 
I sit with a shaman. Like, I'm not just hanging out by myself, even though some people prefer to be by themselves. And whatever your process is, that is, you'll find whatever works for you. Um, I, I feel like I'm in a safe place. I feel like I'm doing something responsible. And it is some, it, it's, it's something that I feel like we, as a society, we can't, the medicine is ancient, but we live in today's society. So building up those edges, as you say, and integrating, like figuring out what that balance is, you will, you will find your path if that's what you feel like doing. But I feel like, are we getting off the music topic? <laughs> well, um, I did want to ask, Devin, MAPS has been leading the way in psychedelics for 30-some years, right? 1986. 1986? Yeah. Right so today, like, how, how, do you, how does MAPS work with people in music? Well, I think, so again, psychedelics is a very, we use psychedelics as an umbrella term, right? And it, again, it has so many factors that it relates to and that it impacts that, you know, when we work with artists, we want to be a we want to be a resource. It's unfair for us to ask the artists. You need to know the uh, pharmacology of this, the indigenous history completely, the regular history, the drug policy, like the psychological aspects of it, right? Like it's just a lot for one individual to know. Plus, make your music, right? <laughs> but what we ask for them and everybody, but we're talking about the context of music, is if you're going to speak about it, if you're going to talk about it, know enough to not harm. Right, know enough to if you're going to talk about a psychedelic as from a animal, know like the uh, ecological landscape of the animal, know about the population fragility. Right, again, you don't know how if it's a two A receptor like Agnes or not. You don't need to know from the perception of like how you would compare it on a psychological standpoint. But no, you know, don't be like Mike Tyson and be like, hey, took five meo, make it super popular, and then affect the toad population in a way that was very bad for us. Is that really the case? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. He, uh, he got on a... He hopefully he doesn't see this. I don't want Mike Tyson to hear me talking about him. That might not be good for me. Uh, but he did. <laughs> I'm like thinking like, man, maybe Mike Tyson's not the best example we'll bring up right now. Um, <laughs> he did. He, he On a podcast, multiple times, he talked about how he did 5-MEO, which I don't have a problem. Remember, 5 -MEO, these drugs are illegal too. I'm not at all promoting anything. I had to say that too. But I'm not saying that's totally bad to talk about your experiences, don't lie. But you could also be like, by the way, had this experience very impactful. Also, did you know that the, the toad population has declined in the last 10 years? They've also had, it's very easy for a synthetic 5-MeO DMT. Um, Hamilton Morris talks about it. There's a ton of YouTube documentaries about it. Um, now you can get the conversation like, is the spirit an animal or not? That's a separate conversation. But there's other ways that you can format this to where you can still be honest about your experience, but also it takes like a five second Google search. But back to the maps things, I think it's our responsibility with these outward facing strategies that we have that to reach out and be a resource mm -hmm. and to be that backboard of, hey, I, I, I had this experience. One, don't know how to talk about who can I integrate with or two, I want to tell it to my, be it social media or however you want to be it, how you want to shout from the rooftops, I want to make sure I have the right information. Mm. And usually you can get the information that is least enough to not harm, and do as little harm as possible. Again, this is a complexity that's, that's very level, but it usually only takes like a 15, 20 minute, you know, intentional conversation to at right. least get enough information. And then also, 
you don't have to be right all the time. You can say, hey, I've had this experience. I don't really know much about it. Mm -hmm. Please, before you do this, please do your research. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's like, a, like a, a rare species. I don't know if like there's a cultural history behind it. My friend gave it to me, so I didn't get to ask that fast. So like you can be just completely honest too. But yeah, with MAPS, is we're trying to be that resource to give, I hate using the word influencers, but give people of influence the right tools to responsibly influence. Because again, they know their communities better than we do. Yeah. I'm not gonna go, there's, there's people who love you who you can reach way better than I can. Mm -hmm. So I wanna give you the tools to help build that community and give you the tools and give y'all the tools because again, y'all impact y'all's communities way more than I can. Yeah. And I love that for y'all. So like, we just wanna be that person to come and have these questions to give you the resources for y'all to have these compounding conversations that really build up and make a big difference. Mm. I think it's uh, kind of amazing in so many ways what you guys are doing. Um, it, we're all benefiting from the research that you guys have been doing and that the scientific community have been doing around these things. Um, when we were kids, uh, as I'm sure you both can attest to and anyone in here can attest to, uh, it was more, uh, I suppose, a spirit of curiosity and adventure, which is amazing that that exists, but it also um, means you're going to encounter a lot more dark places first. Um, and the people that came before, like our generations, uh, who are the early psychonauts. Um, let's just stick to like in the sort of Western hemisphere because these practices are thousands of years old. We don't even know how long human beings have been interacting with these compounds, which is a whole other conversation because it's kind of amazing from like a cosmic point of view. It's like, why do they exist? Why are these molecules present that present themselves to us that uh, interact with our brain chemistry in a way that is so unique that gives us sort of like a opportunity to remove the middleman between a human being and, and a conversation with God or, or pure creativity or, you know, pure space. But nature is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's an amazing thing. And we're a strange anomaly in that like nature is this beautiful, symmetrical, closed loop system yeah. and human beings come in and we enter, you know, we introduce these open loop things that cause so much chaos and all these things. But we're still learning. Anyway, my point being is that it's amazing that you guys are doing the research you're doing because this generation and future generations will benefit and there will be less harm, hopefully, as a result. A lot of us, like, you know, had to have, like I said, I haven't had bad experiences, but I was in proximity to people who were having the worst night of their yeah. lives, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And also, real quick, our research is we're currently legalizing the model to treat PTSD using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I don't think I've said that yet, so throwing it out there. Um, yeah, appreciate that. I, th I think it's really awesome that we're living in this time where we can have a duality of nature and the organic cosmos of exploring yourself and then you know, there's still a pharmaceutical route that we have to play this is how we are in the western world but i, I want to kind of get to the nature and music and why music so important actually even in this like pharmaceutical route right mm -hmm. like a true education is a transformation right and academia and research is beautiful my background is in neuroscience i'm a nerd but Academia and research is only information. There has to be a cultural vehicle that changes that into a transformation, and that lives in arts. It lives in music, art, dance, comedy, because those reaches the basketball courts, the skate parks, the barbershops, the salons, and that's where like the real growth of who you are kind of come up in. Like, mm -hmm. You take this information in class, wherever and you go to these areas, me, basketball court, and I kind of sculpted who I was. Mm -hmm. And so music's such a huge part of it because you know I work with younger people, I wouldn't say kids, who their first introduction to acid was from ASAP Rocky's song LSD, 
right? They're not going to listen to a song and be like, I'm going to go read a two-way peer-reviewed paper from Johns Hopkins about, you know, LSE now. No, they're going to go to their friends in their barbershops and skate parks and talk about what they've heard. So, Though that could be a cool song. Yeah. What, I mean, I'm up for it. Yeah. I'm up for it. It's going to be a rap tune. Right? A song rap, whatever. I like, I like how this is going right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's so important, too, because, like, Music is this, this core influence, so we're just like these super weird things, right? We're, we're constantly walking on the subjective and objective, and music itself is also subjective and objective. And you have an artist who's subjective and objective, making something that's subjective and objective for someone that's subjective and objective. And it's like, it's the only, one of the few things that at our core not only influences us can we enjoy it, but like harmonizes with us. Mm. And there's, music's a story that's malleable, you can change it, you know? like you're going through a breakup or something, or you're going, one song can mean so many things to you, just like how one person can mean so many things to you, and just like how one idea can mean so many things to you. And there's only really a few things in our life that truly influence us to the core and how we think about ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves and how we love and how we laugh. And to get responsible conversation about drug policy and psychedelics and mental health within these contexts is so important. Not just because, again, not because it's fun and people are famous and you know these people and they have influences because from a humanity standpoint, like these are tools that really make a difference. And if we don't put it in these tools and we just assume that science itself is going to move us, we're just going to be in this negative feedback loop, I believe. Mm. Brandon, I'm curious how you feel about, well, for one, you've been involved, you've had the Make Yourself Foundation, since 2004, you've been supporting all kinds of causes. So I'm curious about the, the role that you see of being an artist, having this big platform, and how that pertains to activism and supporting causes, and then how that might relate to psychedelics. Is it something that you feel as an artist, you know, you have a responsibility towards being vocal about, or just in, maybe not a responsibility, but an opportunity to mm. speak more about these? Uh, yeah, I like the, the framing of it being um, less of a responsibility and more of an opportunity. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky place to, to be when you find yourself with any kind of like a platform as a result of notoriety from something that you did because it uh, would be easy to naturally assume because you're successful at something, therefore it's your time to like speak, you know, and it doesn't really mean inherently that you have anything to say. <laughs> it just means that you found yourself in an extremely fortunate situation. Um, so what we've tried to do is take the opportunity to, through uh, our nonprofit, the Make Yourself Foundation, to um, just tell people like the things that were important to us and see if they also found them interesting. And if they did, then here's a way you can participate. So that's been uh, a lot of environmental work. We basically do grants, as you know. Um, we raise money through band-related activities and we do grants to different nonprofits. But um, uh, working with uh, like the David Lynch Foundation was super cool. Um, being someone who's been interested in um, meditation and different meditation techniques for a long time, that was sort of like my moment of being like, I was kind of fanning out in a way, you know? But also to be able to work with you guys, work with maps and interact with you, like this is an area of deep fascination to me. Not only because of um, my, uh, my respect, reverence, and fascination um, for psychedelics, but um, also because it's, a, it's a, a very logical window into looking at human consciousness writ large. Like there's, human consciousness is, um, well it is, 
It's like we're here talking to each other, observing each other, having an experience as a human being. And uh, there's so much we don't know about why we're here and what we're doing and why we're doing it. You know, and that's like a massive understatement. Like we probably don't know most yeah. of what we're doing and why we're here. So as we sort of like are feeling around in the dark, uh, there are there are tools at our behest which are kind of exciting. One of them happens to be psychedelic compounds, which occur in nature. It's this incredible thing. They're just there for those who are like curious enough to, to see them. But then there are things like you know meditation and. Um, there are lots of different techniques that people have been employing for thousands of years, you know, um, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, fasting, uh, dance, sort of trance techniques. M music is sort of like the original thing. And it's interesting that music intersects with psychedelic compounds early, like as early as we can see back into our human history. Um, yeah. Music and psychedelics. Part and the of the ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah, music probably yeah. resulted because of a psychedelic experience that a shaman was having, and they started to, you know, vocalize in a way that transfixed a tribe. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, ahead. someone probably hit a rock. It's like, damn, that's kind of dope. Right. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I, I think so. I want to ask you a question. I'm gonna put my moderating hat on real quick. <laughs> I have some artist friends who they always go like this slump. It's like this creative slump. And I believe it's because, again, as humans, we're objective and subjective. So is the artist and so is the music. And they get to the point, because at first they were just making music because it was fun. The friends, they just happened to get popular. Mm -hmm. And then they start trying to project what their audience wants, because now they have a livelihood from it. But they're also trying to project the projection of a subjective and objective person. So then they kind of lose their self in this self-projection. Yep. I believe psychedelics possibly with the, whether you call it ego dissolution or you call it losing oneself or understanding the self, allows the artist to get a new perception of the self but still gain connectivity. So then with proper integration, they come back and they can see themselves in the person without losing themselves in the person. Do you believe that that's a kind of a concept that's helped with artists and psychedelics, the, the ability to still be able to connect without losing or without I guess, losing oneself in the projection of what they believe people are and people want? Mm. Yes. Yes, I do believe that psychedelics are, um, a, once again, a window into that phenomena. It's an interesting thing to um, make music with your friends and just make what you think sounds cool. And you, you're kind of entertaining each other. And then if it, you entertain each other enough, you're like, Mom, check out this song we wrote. She's like, good for you, honey. And, I'm going to invite the neighbors over, and then it kind of builds from there. It's literally how it happens. Um, if you find yourself in the strange and unique enough scenario that uh, lots and lots and lots of people like it at one time, um, there is a, a, I think it's probably a result of our kind of like Western cultural upbringing. Like we, you try and like scale it. You know what I mean? And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it's, it's dangerous because you can run into the situation where you've, there's the danger of pandering in order to sort of chase a, a moment of success that you might have had. And in our band, in Incubus, we've always had this internal conversation that we acknowledge that as a phenomenon, that that happens. 
and we forgive ourselves sometimes for you know, unconsciously leaning in those directions, but from a conscious point of view, we do our best to remain kind of like blissfully unaware as to what we're supposed to be doing, yeah. like to have a career in music. And for whatever reason, that ethos has led itself to more success. So we have moments where we find, you know, we have like a hit song or something, and it's awesome. And then we have more moments than that that don't hit. It's like you swing 30 times and you hit once. You know what I mean? And um, so uh, I'm forgetting the original part I of your question. Like I digressed any, a little bit. Anytime, though, you're <clears throat> chasing something, and I think... Yeah. You know, the the chase, if you're not authentic to yourself, if you're not being true to what's really in there, I do think a journey, whatever you, a trip, whatever you want to call it, can bring you back inward. Mm. You know, the, the chase, on the industry side, we see it all the time where it's like, all right, you know, major labels, they co-op popular culture. That's mm. their jobs. Like, it's very rare that, like, there's an original thing <laughs> that gets, you know, support right away in these days. From what, from my standpoint, it's always like pale, pale versions of something from the past. It's like second and third generation versions yes. of it. Yes, Brian Eno said it best. Yeah. If you want to be rich, don't get there first. So <laughs> basically, this moment of like someone, a, an artist or a band losing sight and chasing, it's, I, I don't think it, it, it can win, I think guess but it's not I don't know that the artist and at the end of the day the artist needs to feel whole you know mm. they need to feel like they're being seen otherwise what is going to happen to their state of mind it could get really dark if they're pandering if they're chasing yeah if it's like an endless thirst of like I've got to like you know create a song that's got pale pearl jam version or something it's like I remember uh, what I wanted to say. I'm sorry. Um, thank you. That helped bring me back into the, the train of thought. But like psychedelics can be, they're one way to, um, for want of a better way of describing it, remind an artist who they are. Who they are. Yeah. And sometimes it's through scaring the shit out of you. 100%. Like, you know, you have these moments, and once again, everyone in the room raised their hands. You have these moments on psychedelics where you're like, I'm not being authentic. And there's, it's a strange it's thing. It's called the ego death. It's the ego dissolution. The ego yeah. will, will go away. And I watched, I've, I've watched the egos die from friends and other people who have worked with these tools, with these medicines to get back to oneself. Mm. And that is totally terrifying. Yeah, it's the people that fight it the most that have the worst experiences with 100%. psychedelics. Um, that's been, in my observation, not only in, with observing friends and loved ones in these situations, but myself. Like, if I've had inklings towards having a difficult experience, it's been because I was fighting, surrendering to something. Yep. You know what I mean? And so there's a larger kind of overarching spiritual lesson yes. in there. It's huge. Yeah. And you might go out of... You know, you could, as an artist, you could go out of trend for a minute, and I'm not going to name any names, but I've watched them go out of, <laughs> great, um, <laughs> this guy, um, go out of style and then actually come back when, if they've kept consistent with being true, it's an incredible long game journey. You know, chasing pop culture is a dangerous game. 
And I have been in this business a long time. I've worked at major labels, and now I'm at a major management and publishing company. And I, I watch it. I see it. I sit in meetings every day where they're trying to, like, mash up, you know, young gravy. And I, I'm, I'm not going to start talking shit. But I'm just like, oh, my God, is this really happening? Yes, Chasing. It <laughs> and it, it always has. It's been happening. I remember when you guys were looking for a record deal. I was at Capitol. Oh, yeah. And I was like, this man's got a thing, but I'm, I was like indie girl. You mean like in like 1995 when we were trying to get signed? Nine, it was around like, it was early. I, was, I yeah. started there in 99. Oh, okay. But maybe you guys were changing labels. Something this, was that happening. That would have been in the, in the aughts somewhere. We yeah, did like 17 aughts. years with Sony Music. And then um, it was Atlantic? No, then we did some, I don't even remember, with Island Def Jam. Okay. We may have been talking to Capitol. Sorry. Yes, sorry. <laughs> I remember getting... Like, do you want to come to this meeting? And I was like off with like the strokes or something. Yeah. So, so basically, the the moment of you know just finding your true self and really staying true, even if it's the most difficult moment ever, I believe that these are incredible tools to work with to really see that again under you know being being mindful and being supervised. Um, whether it's your own self-supervision or somebody else, mm. it's, they are like, I had probably 20 years of therapy in one night. That's the wild thing about it. And this, hopefully you can speak to this with your experience with uh, MDMA research and people with PTSD, but with these, some of these compounds, and once again, as I'm sure most of you can attest to, occasionally, and I would argue often, you only need to be shown once. You only need to have the experience one time, and you're like, it, it changes your life. If you're heading in this direction, it's like you get knocked off into this direction, like a rock floating through space that gets hit by another rock. You well, know we have I mean? these stories we tell ourselves, you know, constantly. Right. We have these synapses, these nests that are built, and the story keeps going over and over and over again. These tools give you the power to, like you said, knock you off that particular story mm. onto another story. Mm. And because that's what life is. It's just filled with stories that we either tell ourselves or we hear something and we get impressioned. Right. And it's, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm pro <laughs> for all this. <laughs> big pro, big pro psychedelic. I want to make sure we, well, I was going to say, yeah, you can, ask this, you can ask questions. I was going to say, you said the word blissfully unaware. I'm just going to start using that word my boss every time I forget something. I love that word, blissfully unaware something. Okay, that's all. Sure. <laughs> I want to make sure we touch on the live side of music. Um, obviously, music festivals and psychedelics tend to go pretty hand in hand, as well as just a lot of artists and their fan bases. Um, but I'm curious from the industry side of things, what the responsibility is of concert promoters like Live Nation or AG or even the artist side of things in, you know, the more this becomes prevalent or continues to be prevalent at concerts, and making sure that people are safe and curious if you have any thoughts on that, Laurel. Yeah, so I know we talked a little bit last night about that. And, you know, when you're at a festival or you're at a show, you're, unless you're, you know, an artist or, or something, uh, you're, you might have a job that, like, is a very confining job. Um, not everybody loves their job, and that's okay. It's a means to an end, possibly. You, you want to go off, <laughs> and you're at a festival. You like set up your situation for that weekend, whatever it may be. It would be really hard for 
that kind of environment, again, environments like we were talking about, to, to monitor these things, um, I, you know, people are gonna, they wanna cut loose, and I, I fully support that, but I also realize there's consequences to that as well. And, you know, at most music festivals, there are deaths often. I mean, I remember, you know, every year at Bonnaroo, someone would pass away. Like, these things are real things. And, you know, these are, they're hard to monitor. If you tell someone, no, you cannot bring drugs in here, they're going to bring drugs in there. There's no, there, you cannot stop that. And it's, <clears throat> we, we talked about, uh, like, drug checking, clean drugs. Like, I, I think that is a brilliant idea um, to, like, make sure that whatever you are ingesting is not something that's going to kill you right away. And that is a big problem today. I mean, we've lost so many artists to fentanyl, and I'm just, I'm just like, oh, my God. I can't even imagine, like, having a great weekend, and that's how you go out. Like, that's so sad. So controlling... I, I think monitoring what people are ingesting is a better way to go than saying you're, you're not bringing this in here. This isn't happening. Yeah, harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction, yeah. harm reduction. Um, there needs to be more drug tracking, obviously, the ability to test. A lot of this comes from liability from insurance companies. Even law festivals want to do drug testing. There's, they could possibly be liable getting sued. So there needs to be. That's why the whole. When talking about psychedelics and music and anything that involves this space, really, the, the way to have our cake and eat it too is in the war on drugs. That's like the largest thing that will then trickle down for anything else. Because I mean, then that goes from the business side of things, goes from the liability side of things. We can have a spiritual mall that we love and we know can help people, but if a business thinks they're going to get sued, they're most likely not going to do it. And the easiest route is to be able to test your drugs. I mean, people know there's not one festival promoter that thinks, I wonder if people are going to bring drugs today. They all know. Every cop knows. Every person there knows. Every artist knows. Like, is this a logical next step? But again, if they feel like they're going to get sued, they're more likely not going to do it. And there's amazing programs out there that do test drugs and try their best. I mean, Dance Safe is a great program. In Overdose is a great program. There's literally hundreds. And if they get allowed into these places, they'll do it for you, mostly for free. But it goes back to a, a liability thing. It, it's back to the systems that we're in. So it's like, if we are able to end a war on drugs, and if we are able to go from a I wouldn't say top-down approach, but a larger umbrella approach, these things get a lot easier because it hits the dollar sign, right? And it, it helps the communities, obviously, but hitting the dollar sign with these big things like festivals, which are already very small margins. Festivals are incredibly small margins. Most of them make money like the first seven years, I believe. So, like, if you already have something that's risky and then you're going to add drug checking that you can then get sued for, it adds to them another layer of complexity that they won't do. So it's like in a war on drugs. And I say that, and, you know... Uh, that's a really big statement. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to go walk to Washington, D.C. right now, right? It's like a hard thing to like really grasp like, how do you do that. So the things I say is like if you're a manager, right, at a job or you manage two people or whatever, you have coworkers, make it a safe setting for your employees to talk about drugs. Um, if you feel comfortable, tell your person that you work left or right about drug experiences. Like those are ways to normalize it. It's creating settings around you. Again, it's small and it's slow, but small compounding changes that didn't build up. Uh, and it's really creating a setting to allow other people to talk. Like, we, we can talk a lot about it, but if there's someone that, again, maybe from, I come from a very, I love the fact that I come from West Texas. Politically, kind of crazy, but people, very loving. 
And it also has given me the ability to talk in rooms that I don't normally talk about this. And you, you create these settings that allow them to step forward. It has to be their idea, right? I could tell them any study, every study ever made, every experience, every indigenous history and protocol, whatever has been done. But if they don't have a moment where they step in and they say, oh, I did this, or I felt this, or I feel comfortable saying this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I say. So like small steps we can do to end the war on drugs from the get-go, that's not policy-wise, that's not marching, that's not like writing to your local government, is to create settings, especially in a business context, that allow people to talk about their experiences and hopefully mm -hmm. that compounds the bigger action. It's so important, like even just us having this sort of casual conversation about it this morning is kind of mind-blowing for me just for where we started. You know, it's like, what was your first experience? You know, I was a kid and I was under threat of being arrested if I found myself in the wrong company. Um, so it, it's interesting because there, there are uh, analogs to the way that we historically in our culture have like talked about and or dealt with human sexuality, you know? And like it's sort of, it's, it's like square one of being a human being. Like we're, we're sexual animals, you know, we reproduce. Yet somehow voices got into the conversation in American culture it was like, it's a sin, it's wrong. Don't have sex, deny it, don't talk about it. You know what I mean? And so uh, by making contraceptives widely available and changing the conversation around it in, in general, it, it is changing the way that we interact. It's making, in my opinion, the world a better place. You know what I mean? So understanding the inevitability that like at music festivals, like people are gonna do drugs, you know? Let's have, what's that? It's an I'm people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, let's, let's change the cultural conversation around it, accept that it's an inevitability, and then let's start and let's educate people. It's like, there are, there are drugs and then there are drugs, you know? And if you're gonna do those drugs, here's a free test yeah. to make sure you're ingesting what you think you're ingesting. But you have to turn around before we leave the stage because your jacket's amazing, by I the way. I do, I uh, will turn around before we leave yeah. the stage. I appreciate that. So we have 10 minutes back there. Cool. Um, do we want to? Yeah, let's let's open it up to some questions. Does there anyone have anything they would like to ask? Uh, I just wondered if you could talk about uh, the role of like psychedelics when you're actually performing on stage. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have never, I've never taken psychedelics uh, to any like measurable degree and gone on stage. Um, there is, that environment is beautifully chaotic. It's one of the things that's attractive about it, I think, to probably musicians in general, is that you could be practiced uh, to, you know, to the nth degree. You could be practicing for years, and the minute you walk on stage, like, everything disappears. Like, you can find yourself in the wrong moment, and you just draw a blank, you know what I mean? So that being said, there's still time. I mean, we're going on tour this summer, so. <laughs> if you see a YouTube video of me, like, uh, you know, doing something a little special, maybe I've taken it into consideration. I don't know how anyone could do that. Like, just being on the backside, not performing, but watching everything going on between production, and I was like. It's a deeply psychedelic thing to begin with. In general. Yeah, that level of communion, and to have, you know, to have written a song and had the words mean something to you when you were in your 20s. And then you sort of put it out there and you're like, oh, maybe people will like it. And then like a lot of people like it and they come and they sing with you. It's this amazing, uh, once again, it's becoming like a sort of 
overarching adjective, but psychedelic experience to have that conversation with thousands of people. It's like this beautiful, interactive, churning conversation. So haven't done that yet, um, but there's still time. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you can go to maps.org. There's some beautiful resources there. Uh, I agree. It is, it is confusing on how to enter because the first question is like, enter what? Right? Like, what if we're going from West Side from an actual policy standpoint, from an actual therapy standpoint? Um, so, I believe, it, is your question like actual physical resources to look up? Yeah, have you tried maps.org? Sorry, say that again? I thought it was only based in Baltimore. Oh, no, no, not all. Yeah, MAPS is all throughout, we're technically international too. Yeah, yeah, go to maps.org and we have plenty of resources, so much so that you won't sleep for probably three days. So I, I definitely, yeah, check it out. How long has MAPS been in operation? It's 1986. Been, it's been decades, right? Yeah, been decades. Yeah. MAPS is? 37 years, I believe. This, fun fact, the same year that Burning Man started. Coincidence? <laughs> no. no, I think not. Anyone else? Go ahead. Um, so do you think there's a connection with how the sound of music, specifically pop music, is kind of reverting back to that like 60s, 70s vibe? Like do you think like psychedelics bring out, I guess, a different trend of like creating music to sound more like vibey? I mean that's a really interesting question actually, with the rise of, you know, people working with I, I call it medicine, but psychedelics. <laughs> um, uh, I would say there might be there might be something to that. There there definitely could because I know whenever I'm in that headspace, like certain tones, certain things, you know, within like the music creation are more pleasing than others. Um, organic tones, uh, you know, there are also a lot of like. There's a couple different companies um, that are employing musicians, like uh, Wavepaths is a really cool company that's working with, uh, do you know about them? Yeah, like they're, you know, they had hired one of the, one of my clients to work with them on creating music for their programs of, of uh, medicine and sound. So there might be something to that just on a, pop culture level too of, of people working in that space but it is a really cool question can I answer it yeah definitely but I I can't but I can say that when I hear certain things it definitely resonates in a certain way and being someone that actually helps guide you know record making processes etc I, I wouldn't it's possible yes I would say it's possible yeah absolutely there's also the um this is a little bit more of a cynical take, but there's pop culture like the, at the highest rungs of pop culture, the stuff that gets like sort of disseminated the most usually is uh, like a second and third and fourth generation imitation of something that they're like interpreting. Yeah, there's that. But then there's also like there, there is really, really wild uh, music 
incredible to listen to um, in, in any state of mind, but that is made um, uh, during ayahuasca ceremonies. And it doesn't sound anything like pop music you've ever heard before. It sounds like it's coming from outer space, being filtered through the fingers of like jazz musicians. And it's incredible to witness. And it, the likelihood of it becoming like popular music in pop culture is very low, but I have hope. Yeah, I like seeing Krungbin become this popular. Say again? Krungbin? Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. Mean, they're a psychedelic band. Yeah. And they are wildly popular, like on level. That's that very I, true. And not like in a kind of cheesy pop culture no, sense. There's they some, are. They're into some grooves. Yeah, it's some different shit. It's a very psychedelic situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> King Gizzard. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna jump in real quick because when this panel first came together and Brandon came to me, we actually were talking about having one of my clients be on this panel and because she does work in that space sometimes with psychedelics, she was hesitant and that's why she's not here. <laughs> so, mm. And it wasn't because she has any shame or anything like that, but she was, we're still, we still have to, de like we have to stop demonizing and she is someone who has been, you know, vocal about other things and gets attacked in the press once in a while. And she was like, I don't know if I want to, like, put myself out there like this. And mm -hmm. I was, I really wanted her to do this, but this feels more balanced because we have an artist on the panel. Um, but she, she didn't want to put herself out there because of the possibilities of being, you know, criticized. There's a stigma attached to it, too, which yeah. is probably what she's reacting to. Yes. Um, I've just turned 47, and one of the lovely things about being in my late 40s is that you sort of realize that you're not going to run for president, and <laughs> you start to kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I do do that, don't I? You know, and it's cool, and I've actually I'm better for it, and so you start to I don't know, share a little bit more of your unique experience, and I always caveat the things that I say about my experience with psychedelics, as I did earlier in the conversation with that sort of that reverence and that respect um, for these for these compounds, for these plant medicines, you know, because they um, are extremely powerful and we probably don't know most about them still. So maybe that's part of people's hesitation too. But one of the reasons why I said yes, not only do I love Brandon and I'm interested in what you guys are doing as well, but um, I personally love thinking about, talking about, and ruminating on areas of human experience that aren't as clearly defined. Um, to me, that's been my experience with art. That's one of the reasons why I've been so captivated and fascinated by it, and eternally curious as to where it might lead, because it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be a center of the onion, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. I also, I work with a lot of artists and causes and always trying to get artists to support different causes, run campaigns. And I think a lot of people haven't seen psychedelics as a cause and supporting groups like MAPS 
I think that's a big part of it. I think they need to be asked, and I think they need to understand what the point of it is. I think they just hear psychedelics and they might initially laugh. <laughs> but understanding that there's nonprofits doing great work in this space and it's, it's around the destigmatization, responsible use of psychedelics, it's a whole different thing. So I think we're going to see a lot more artists coming out of the so called psychedelic closet, especially in this next couple of years. Like that framing, <laughs> psychedelic closet. Well, let's see what we got here. I think we're past time. So thank you all so much for being here. Thank you all for joining. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it.